Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week I'm joined by an all-star cast to talk about European defence. One of the big topics in recent years has been a concern about the demilitarisation of Europe on so many different levels. Uh, There have been questions about whether Europeans have lost their will to power, whether their aversion to casualties is so great that they won't deploy even the few troops that they have, but also concerns about falling budgets, fragmented procurement, and a general punching below the collective weight uh, in a continent that uh, had brought so much war and violence to the world in previous centuries. But now people are wondering whether this set of events is starting to turn. One of the unintended consequences of the Brexit vote has been a decision in many other capitals to focus more on European defence. There's even talk of a European army in some quarters. Some countries are spending more on defence than they were in previous years. And the French and the Germans in particular have been pushing the idea of a new Schengen for security issues. Much of that is about internal security, but defence spending is related to that. And there's even talk of a, of a defence white paper. So to help us make sense of all of these things, we have an all-star cast, as I said earlier, with Nick Whitney, who is a senior policy fellow at ECFR, and former founding director of the European Defence Agency in Brussels and before that was a senior official in the British Ministry of Defence. Manuel Lafont-Hapnoui is the head of ECFR's Paris office and is also a senior policy fellow and uh, can tell us about the way that things look in Paris and finally Ulrike Franke is a researcher who works a lot, particularly on military technology issues. Drones is her speciality. But she also hails from from Germany. So she can maybe tell us what's in Angela Merkel's mind and uh, Steinmeier's and von der Leyen's minds as they go into this as well. So Nick, do you want to start by giving us an overview? Because there seems to be a bit of a ferment around these topics. Yes, well, it is the case that defence does seem once again to be moving up the European policy agenda. There was a period five, ten years ago when the priorities for European governments were were fiscal consolidation, which code for for cutting the defence budget, Um, and anyway, everybody felt pretty safe. Um, We knew we had the Americans to look after us, and uh, defence didn't really seem uh, any kind of policy priority. this has changed rather obviously with um, with uh, Mr. Putin's uh, invasion of Ukraine and uh, annexation of Crimea and the um, not merely the emergence of the ISIS caliphate but the but the transmission of uh, ISIS violence onto the onto the streets of Europe. So the threats have become much more real and tangible to both European citizens and governments. Um, I think there's also a growing realization that. Um, Although the Americans have been complaining for 50 years about Europeans free-riding on their security, the level and tenor of some of the complaints coming across the Atlantic, most conspicuously from Donald Trump, um, are of a wholly new order. And Trump has said in terms that he's 
he would have a hard think about coming to the uh, assistance of a NATO ally if they hadn't shaped up properly on their own defence efforts. Um, so I think that has had some influence on Europeans. Um, Brexit has been a shock. There is a, a feeling that, in this sense, somehow Europe is losing one of its major defence players, although the Brits, of course, go out of their way to say that they remain fully committed to NATO. And more generally, anyway, there's a, there's a casting around, I think, to try to find um, new policy agendas in Europe which can show that the whole European project is not dead in the water and that um, Europeans are capable of getting ahead and doing things together which does not mean to say that the primary focus is on European defence a la European Union. Uh, I think the primary emphasis is on NATO, and there was a successful NATO summit in Warsaw in July which beefed up our forward defences against the Russians. But uh, at the same time, um, we've had this uh, new, uh, new a set of initiatives bubbling up principally the Franco-German one for uh, what they call a new security compact, but the Italians have chipped in and one or two others as well, saying the time is right to try to move forward on European defence. That is partly in, in bureaucratic terms. This is also helped along its way by the fact that the Europeans, as Europeans and the EU, agreed a new global strategy uh, in June, ironically just a day or two after the, uh, the Brexit referendum vote, and that now requires unpacking into more specific implementation plans. So there is a process now taking shape to form a, a defence uh, uh, implementation plan for, for the end of the year. There's also a bit of looking ahead to the um, was it 60th anniversary of the origins of the EU next March, and again a feeling that there should be sexy deliverables for that. So in terms of the atmospherics, the surrounding political context, there is, I think, more interest than there's been for quite some while in moving forward on European defence as a, as a complement, I mean, specifically EU defence efforts as a complement to NATO. Question, what exactly? And why should it be more successful this time than previous um, politically inspired efforts which have delivered at best disappointing results? Thanks. I just realised I undersold you in my introduction. You're all, not only all of the things I mentioned, but you're a personality as well, are you not? I am a personality, Mark. It's, um, <laughs> it's uh, only in my seventh decade did I realise this, but um, that is a, a technical term um, for a group of names recruited by the Commission to um, put weight behind what they plan to do already, which in this case is put a large amount of European Union budget money into defence research. And lo and behold, we personalities all agree that this was a splendid idea. Under and the leadership of Michel Barnier, the former French foreign minister. Under the leadership of Commissioner Bienkowska, the, uh, the trade and industry. Um, <laughs> but uh, Michel Barnier, Eminence Grise, the Richelieu, oh, he also, also the Richelieu of, of the... He was the personality of personalities. He, he, <laughs> he, he remains so. Um, and none of this, I have to jump in and correct your introduction, none of this except in the sealed world of the UK media is associated with, a, with an EU, a European army. The European army, you can't say that nobody talks about it because amongst 500 million Europeans there are one or two people who every now and again rashly use this term sloppily. 
Only in London does anybody believe that there could be substance behind this figment. And, of course, only in London could Defence Secretary Fallon use this as an excuse to carry on trying to veto the famous European headquarters, as he has inexplicably done in the last week or two. Maybe if I can just uh, chip in very briefly on what you said, because um, I like that you have a relatively positive outlook on things, Nick, because I have to say I'm relatively sceptical and remain sceptical when it comes to European defence mainly in terms of the actual capabilities. So you mentioned the UK as one of the main military actors in Europe, and that is true. But um, most of our listeners may have seen that, I think a week or two ago, the FT ran a first-page article on UK defence capabilities, where it basically said that the UK was barely able to defend to defend Westminster if there was an attack. So I'm, I'm slightly sceptical when it comes to actual capabilities, especially because the thinking has changed, as you have mentioned, but the spending really hasn't that much. So if I take the German example, yes, Germany has pledged to spend more on defense, and I think it's now a 6% increase in defense spending between 2016 and 2019. But in real terms, GDP uh, growth, that actually means that percentage of GDP defense spending goes down because the German economy is projected to grow faster than that. So, again, I remain skeptical on on the capabilities. Now, uh, Ulrika, let's stop fixating on on the money. On on hard power, on actual capabilities. No, no, I very much believe in hard power and actual capabilities. What I do not believe in is artificial benchmarks about the scale of defence spending. The fact is that Europe is still spending about 200 million euros per year on defence, which I think is still more than China, probably. If you put all the nation states together, the problem about European defence spending and the resultant lack of capabilities where I agree with you entirely. No bang for the euro. Is that we get such <laughs> rotten bang for the euro stroke pound stroke slotty. Um, and because we continue to do everything on a national basis, suboptimally, duplicating and wasting our money. That's the, that's the Actually, key problem. Not only we could spend more money and still be as uh, ineffective in terms of potential of capabilities, but even if we were more uh, able, uh, develop, transforming that money into uh, capabilities that actually would help us, that uh, can operate and not that... Uh, a broke uh, break every time we want to use them, mm-hmm. we would still need uh, something else. And that is, uh, that, according to me, that's what it is about. Are we shifting uh, views in terms of not just we need some defense in case of, or we need to abide by benchmarks which are uh, slightly artificial, they, they have a sense, but they don't tell a lot by themselves, but are we actually willing to do something? And that's I would say that's the limit of the Franco-German initiative. Uh, it's focusing a lot on the basically uh, sum it up with three points. Uh, we need to uh, be more explicit in terms of what's the uh, European level of ambition. We need to fix the institutional architecture to get better institutions more focused on defense issues, uh, defense and security. So what does that mean? That means, for instance, that right now there is no uh, meeting at the ministerial level formally between the defense ministers. Okay. That's, that's a very simple thing uh, to fix. And the third, uh, the third layer, basically, is funding and uh, industry, uh, industrial policy. Uh, how do you organize to get a better European defense uh, industrial base? Uh, but even if you have that, then the question is still, what is it you want to do with it? And that gets back to the idea of the level of uh, ambition. The level of ambition is also 
the, the threat assessment that you have and the, the, what you are willing to do to, uh, to uh, counter that threat and promote uh, your security interests uh, throughout your neighborhood and the broader environment. And it's a good thing that we are moving on the more architectural uh, dimension of it. We need to be moving on the operational uh, aspect of it. And I'm not saying um, CSDP has not done anything in terms of operation. It's done. So CSDP is the common security and defense policy. And it has some military and civilian or military or civilian uh, missions uh, deployed in the world. But that's, that's often a kind of limited contribution to a broader uh, effort. But do you think, I mean, one of the interesting things um, which Nick has written about uh, over the years is, is this uh, idea of using the assets which... Um, the EU has. I mean, there's a big focus after Kosovo and the failure of the Europeans to be able to do many airstrikes uh, to build up kind of standing forces, and and then we have so we have these various different uh, uh, forces. Most famously, the battle groups, which have yet to be uh, used at all. And France uh, talks a big game on European defence, but when it intervened in Mali, uh, chose not to use the European battle group. Why was that? And do you think that might change in the future? And, and what, what could change French decision-making? Because France is one of the most likely countries to get involved in an intervention if the past is a guide to the future. Well, I, I would say the question is not uh, about what the French want to do. It's about what the other Europeans want to do also. Right now, the other Europeans are mostly focused on doing either pre-crisis or post-crisis uh, operation. Either you do... Uh, training, uh, or you do post-conflict, uh, for instance, uh, uh, security sector reform or disarmament uh, operations. But what about the, the middle of, of the spectrum? Uh, there are not that many countries willing to act. I'm not sure the battle groups are always the best uh, tool. We can't focus only on, on battle groups as the response. They don't uh, allowed to respond to every situation. But why, what, I mean, just for people who didn't follow it closely, because Mali was some, was a, a really important issue. France made a big difference, but presumably there was a decision-making process where France must have thought about whether to use the battle groups or not. I mean, why did it choose not to? It's not a criticism. I'm just trying to understand. So the, the story is that France was actually trying to promote a African-led response to the crisis in Mali. And the African-led response was slow in uh, deploying and uh, being able to actually uh, fulfill its mandate. And then the situation all of a sudden worsened. And there was this famous call by the... Uh, uh, Malian president, and so there was a need for a quick reaction. And the battle group is just too cumbersome and not fit uh, for that operation. The question is, what, what is after that? Why is it that the French all of a sudden didn't, in advance or as soon as possible, warn the Europeans that they should come and try to turn that operation into a uh, more Europeanized operation? And yes, the, the thinking in Paris was that the most valuable uh, contribution by the Europeans would be on the side, would be either through the UN operation of peacekeeping or through a EU-led mission that would help the Mali authorities, the Malian authorities, to rebuild their security capacities. There's, there's a credibility issue 
in between ourselves. There's a trust issue yeah. in between ourselves. So no one's got less credibility than the Germans when it comes to actually going out after dark or not having lots of caveats on the deployment of troops. Is that something which is changing? How nicely you put that, Mike. <laughs> um, I think it may be changing somewhat, yes. There is definitely a rethink happening within Germany about military capabilities. However, it should be said that the Bundeswehr is definitely overstretched. Um, the Bundeswehr has been used quite a lot with regard to the refugee crisis. Um, there is now discussion of using the Bundeswehr internally in times of uh, catastrophes, terrorism attacks, etc. So um, I think again more defense spending is, is is clearly needed in germany and it's not really coming that much um and i wanted to come back to the to the franco-german cooperation that uh, manuel mentioned earlier because i'm slightly concerned that from the german side the the interest between behind this cooperation to me appears mainly to be to to do something with France, because the Franco-German European motor really hasn't been working for, for ages. And so the... And it works particularly badly on economic and Eurozone-related issues, so this might be displacement activity from that. Exactly, exactly. And since Germany is interested in, interested in doing more on the fence, um, and, you know, Brexit happened, I think there's this, this kind of willingness to... to put out this political signal that now they're cooperating with France on the fence issues. But I'm slightly uncertain whether so much is going to come of it and it would be interesting to, to get your opinion, Manuel, on that. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that it's a, a sea change all of a sudden, but you can see a lot of uh, differences being made over the last year. It's not just uh, that Berlin is talking the talk, but actually what they're doing uh, in Iraq, for instance, in the fight against Daesh, this is the first that you have German troops deployed abroad in a situation where there's actually a war going on and they're, they're deployed under no multinational framework. Usually mm -hmm. they would deploy only with all the, the multilateral architecture, etc. Well, they can't have caveats because uh, caveats is with regard to when you're under someone else's command. They okay. have their own rules but, and, and their own training mission, but still they, they do that. They are uh, supporting um, the um, strikes against Daesh, uh, which are led, done by others, but they are bringing support. So you will obviously find, especially French military, we will express concern about all the caveats and the fact that uh, in Mali, famously, there's this one story that goes all around Paris that uh, when French troops needed to go from one point to another and there yeah. was a plane available, the plane said, ah, it's not in our mandate, we can only... Uh, uh, transport uh, material equipment but no troops so we can't do it that's really a annoying from the a German plane mm -hmm. uh, that's really annoying from the French uh, point of view but there's also a learning by doing uh, process and I, I it's, it, you can't just uh, blame Germany for not doing anything and then blame Germany for trying to do something and the question again is it's, I agree with you it's not just getting your equipment and your military and your architecture and your funding ready it's about being able to use it so that's that's the test that will come for, to us for the record I will never blame Germany for doing something and I want to jump in and inject a an uncharacteristic note of optimism in this. I mean, I have been in near-terminal despair about the whole European defence idea for a decade now, but I do sort of wonder whether there's something might just come of this particular moment. Um, the Aero Steinmeier initiative and paper produced almost immediately after Brexit does contain some interesting stuff, and uh, Manuel and I had the uh, privilege of being 
present at a briefing, um, a couple of young men from the two respective planning departments of the Asperticus Amt and the K, which I found almost inspiring. Here were, here were young bureaucrats who actually believed in what they were trying to achieve, which was more than just a piece of paper to cover over the cracks. And there was stuff in there which, you know, when did the Germans uh, last uh, agree to the concept of a more coherent and assertive Europe? Strategic autonomy is also... Uh, uh, well, yes, so that's a rabbit hole we don't want to go down. Um, but let's face it, all these things depend on the politics and the personalities. I, I kind of think that with its Steinmeier and Aero are an encouraging tandem. Le Drian and, and uh, von der Leyen, the, the, the defence ministers. The defence ministers of France and Germany both obviously weighty individuals in their own right and their own systems, I can imagine that they, they could together actually start to achieve something. Um, but what really matters at the end of the day is the occupants of the... is, is Merkel and Hollande and whoever comes after them. But I, I do see grounds for a bit of optimism. And, of course, their idea is to um, resurrect the concept of permanent structured cooperation, which is to try to bind in another small... Mix. Faye, you're the, you're the grandfather of permanent structured cooperation, aren't you? Not in the least. Not in the least. <laughs> this, I, it was a sort of... Or the father. No, it was a rather half-baked idea dreamed up in the, in the original European constitution, and I think there were many flaws in the... It, it, is, a, it is a difficult concept to operationalise, but the key to it is decide not to start with who's in and who's out, who are, the, who are the sheep, who are the chosen few, and who are the ones you're going to exclude. The key is to start with, if we have a group, what is it that we're going to commit to each other that we're going to do? So what do you think, I mean, maybe we I mean, like end with spend that. spend 10% of our, okay. we promise that 10% 10 10 of our defence research budgets will be spent commonly with the other members of the group in the coming years, or um, we will collectively commit to trying to take 20% out of our test and evaluation bases across our, across our defence infrastructures um, by using each other's facilities. I mean, there are, there are an almost endless list of things you could do if you, if you seriously committed to do it, not as something that the staff might like to study, but as something that we're making a political commitment to do. And what difference to end does the kind of Brexit make to this? Because Britain was obviously uh, vetoing some steps forward, like having an operational headquarters and funding for your old uh, institution, the European Defence Agency. But apart from uh, giving people a desire to show greater unity, does uh, Brexit help in any other way? Yeah, one of the key questions is, was the UK, uh, uh, in its opposition to a further European defence, um, doing the job for other member states? Or is it so that now uh, that obstacle being removed, it will be uh, able to uh, move forward? Actually, I, I agree with uh, Nick. Uh, there's, the, the UK was always... Uh, reluctant on moving forward on the institutional and more uh, organizational uh, side of it, was less reluctant, even though it was a bit, uh, to move in terms of operation. It actually pushed for a few operations. It contributed to a few operations. It even uh, commended uh, the Atalanta operation against piracy in the Gulf of Aden, even though it had no uh, uh, 
military vessels in, uh, in, at, at sea at the time, but it was still, uh, the headquarter was uh, in the UK. But obviously there is an issue, which is what will the other do now that uh, they have to walk the walk and not just talk the talk? Well, we will have to uh, see what happens in practice. Sounds like uh, the nightmare scenario would be a great leap forward in terms of the architecture, but nobody wanting to use any of the, the new kit which we spend uh, all of this money on. But uh, it was a rare, uh, an unusually optimistic discussion of European defence. So it was a thank you very much to all the experts and personalities that... Uh, uh, helped us to to make sense of this. Maybe do one last thing with this podcast, which is the the bookshelf segment. Ulrika, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Um, so I think it has become a tradition for me to recommend uh, science fiction um, books, um, but this one I'm recommending is very much uh, in line with the topic we've been discussing, and it's called War Stories from the Future. It's a publication by the Art of Future War Project by the Atlantic Council, and it's a collection of science fiction stories on the future of warfare, so quite relevant. Nick? I wasn't expecting this, and I can't remember the author of the book I'm reading, which is called Empire of the Seas, and is about the struggle for the Mediterranean between the Ottoman and the Habsburgs. And very fascinating it is if you're interested in galley warfare. And Manuel, what's on your bookshelf? Michael Rosen's new book, which is called Who Are Refugees and Migrants? Michael Rosen is a poet and a performer, and I like him very much, and my kids like him very much, so I will read that with delight, I'm sure. What a culturally sophisticated bookshelf uh, this was. We hope that you have enjoyed listening to us. If you have, please help other people find out about it. It's very important that you go to our Facebook page, which is Facebook slash ECFR, and um, leave a comment on that. That you go to iTunes, give us a rating and a review, or SoundCloud or MixCloud or whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast. And if you have any comments on this, uh, please do feel free to write to me, mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. Or tweet about us and encourage your friends and family and other people that you know to, to listen to the podcast. We have put links up to all the publications that we mentioned, both on our Facebook page and on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye. Goodbye.